Okay, hang with me for today's gratitude journey because today I am grateful that my great grandmother's grandfather clocks were repaired. That's a lot of GRs. Anyways, they're repaired. And so from now until the end of eternity, we will be editing out cuckooing at the back of the recordings for every single first bite episode ever. So y'all, they're here and they're hung and they're like this family treasure that's we don't know, a hundred plus years old. And I am grateful that they were able to be repaired. So to my mother-in-law, thank you so much for fixing my Nana's grandfather's clocks. Both of them. I'm also really glad only one of them cuckoos because (laughs) they work. (laughs) All right, y'all enjoy today's episode. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join you. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Okay, everybody, we are full swing getting ready for ASHA and we're bloody hell probably only six weeks away at the, by the time you're listening to this. So I'm looking forward to seeing everybody in Boston and uh, we're going to kind of tease out from there. Today's guests are part of Aaron and I's efforts to expand our interprofessional education to grow our interprofessional practice. And I know that a lot of y'all listening don't actually conduct swallow studies, right? I mean, some of you may, but a good chunk of us don't have that 
opportunity because there's just so many hospital SLP opportunities available, right? But we're still the ones that are encouraging and giving the recommendations to the caregivers that their child may need an instrumental swallow evaluation, which that can be a hard sell at times. So we're here today to help you make that easier and deport evidence into your caregiver coaching. So without further ado, Erin and I have the joy of introducing Carolyn Brindo, MACCC SLP BCSS, who's currently the head of Veribar with Bracco Like Taco, not Bracco, so Bracco Like Taco, Diagnostics Inc. She is a board certified specialist and she does a ton of stuff behind the scenes. And you might have caught her previously on Swallow Your Pride. If you haven't, she's done a couple of episodes with Swallow Your Pride. So go let her grow your evidence-based triangle. But she will be for sure at ASHA working a booth. And her partner in crime for the day, Aaron, help me because I'm going to do it wrong, is Dr. Stephen Cerisi. Cerisi. Yes. Yes. There you go. I thought you were going to try the Italian version. Well, I I froze because I was like, oh my God, is it Cerisi or Cerisi? Because we had this big, long conversation on the origins of names and I couldn't remember if it was the um, Sicilian or the... Anyways, we geeked out, y'all. We geeked out. But Dr. Stephen is the Executive Director of Medical Affairs, who serves as the head of Medical Affairs for Americas for Bracco. I butchered that. It's been a long day. Bear kept me up. I blame the boo bear. But he, and he's currently working from home, but he helps support the scientific communication and education for Bracco's Veribar product line. And just basically growing people's awareness about kind of what's in what's in the barium sulfate that we were consuming. And he received his MD from the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey uh, before going off to work in various settings, including Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York as an assistant professor of radiology. So y'all, these folks know their business. So hi. I play with tiny humans. We eat and it's great. So (laughs) there it is. (laughs) Sounds like you have more fun. (laughs) I really do. But Erin Shirley is the queen of play. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks, Michelle and Erin. I'm excited to be here. I'm sure Dr. Cerisi is as well. Well, Thank you for coming on. Can y'all take us from the top? Carolyn, can you tell us what made you want to be an SLP and then one who focuses in this sub, sub, sub specialty? (laughs) Yeah, sure. It's actually, you know, it's a great job to talk about at parties sometimes and kind of explain what I do. (laughs) Really unique. So, yeah. So I went into grad school. My mom is a teacher and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And she suggested uh, speech therapy. So I went in, I did my undergrad at the University of Akron here in Ohio, and then I went on to grad school and I did a student teaching-based placement, and it was really challenging. (laughs) You know, I had like 93 kids on my caseload, I was at five different schools, and I just thought, I don't know if this is something I can do. So then the very next semester, I took a class in 
dysphagia, dysarthria, and apraxia because at the time you didn't really Wait, get a whole all class. in one class. All in one class. Yeah. So you didn't oh get God. a whole class in dysphagia, just like a third of a class at the time. And so I was really loved the dysphagia part of it. And then I'm going to date myself even further here. But one day the professor brought in VHS tapes of modified barium swallow studies of adults and infants. And I was just blown away. I was just really like fascinated by them. And I actually went up and I asked him if I could take the tapes home with me. And he laughed, but he also let me, which was great. So I took them home and I watched them all weekend. And I was just, I've just always been fascinated with the modified barium swallow study. So then my first job I took at a hospital, it was a small rural hospital here in Ohio. They had five other speech pathologists and they were awesome, but they had just started their swallow study program basically. And none of them really enjoyed it. Like they just, it wasn't their, you know, their interest level. And so during my interview, I just went on and on about how much I loved them, not knowing they were looking for somebody who liked modified barium swallow studies and they hired me. So I was really lucky to get that job from my fellowship year, just right out of school in a hospital, learning and training on how to do swallow studies. So we had a infant feeding program there. So I did all, I started training and learned how to do all the, the infant swallow studies and did all of our adults and outpatients. And since then, I've done just a little bit, almost everything that you can do as a speech pathologist, but always with a focus on dysphagia and the modified barium swallow study. So I've done a little bit of home health and inpatient, outpatient rehab. I've done, I've worked in skilled nursing facilities. I worked for, for years for a mobile modified barium swallow study company. Um, so and then I started working for Bracco about six months ago. My predecessor, Julie Peterson, also a speech pathologist, did a wonderful job, retired, you know, um, and they were looking for someone. So I just jumped on the opportunity and here I am. So that's my little swallow study story. <laughs> nice. I want to know, have you ever seen a mega esophagus or have you ever seen, I saw, heard it called a corkscrew esophagus where yeah. it like goes around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I actually, in my prior job with a mobile MBS company, I started and wrote a blog called modified Monday. And there's a couple it's on it's, if you look up modified Monday, it's on there, but there's a mega esophagus, there's a corkscrew esophagus. So yeah, I got to see a lot of interesting things over the last years of doing. <laughs> we are Botox friendly here. You're in good company. So that's okay. Erin <laughs> is not Botox friendly, but I got you covered. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, well, Dr. Steven. Yeah. Tell, tell us your journey. How did you become a physician and also in radiology? Because that seems very, I heard a scary story about a study that was done on gorillas in CT scans and how often a gorilla inserted into a CT scan is missed. And so now I'm worried about radiology as a general rule of thumb, but hi, how are you? <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity to scan any gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> missed opportunity. <laughs> You know, well, I mean, I, I guess I always, I always wanted to be a, a physician. And then, you know, you get to medical school and then a little later on, you realize that that's only the beginning. You know, now you have to pick what kind you're going to be. 
And you go through your various uh, rotations, surgery, medicine, obstetrics, gynecology, et cetera. And I went through all the basic ones in third year and I, I was still undecided. <laughs> so I had to do electives in fourth year. And uh, I came upon radiology simply because I liked the idea of, you know, solving unknowns. I think, you know, you're, you're presented with so what's going on with this person. And you have to uh, put together you know, in your mind, what it is you're seeing on the imaging study and come up with it with an answer. And I, I like that sort of thing. But when I went into practice, I found the the day to day of it to be not exactly what I was looking for, for my career. It was mm -hmm. uh, difficult. And for me to deal with the conditions of work, you know, it's one thing to say, I like what I'm doing. It's another thing to like the conditions of being a radiologist in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So I looked for a change and I went into industry and then that became my career. I've been in industry over 25 years now, and I've supported a whole bunch of different products in different settings and got uh, assigned our Varibar, our product for the MBSS, a few years ago. Nice. And I figured out early on that one of the, the real needs was that people don't realize what goes into making a barium sulfate product and, you know, how they do what they do and why they're different from each other and what you should use and why. And that became sort of my educational focus in my support to the product. That's been fun to do. That's huge. I have nothing to do with swallow studies. I mean, I've participated in a few a couple of times but there I don't mm -hmm. I don't want to work in a hospital I don't do well in confined spaces that's an understatement <laughs> um yeah the radiology <laughs> department is not for you <laughs> no it's not but Erin on the other hand she actually does the swallow awesome. studies so Erin can you kind of for folks that aren't in the room as mm -hmm. the can you kind of describe for us what that experience is like? Because when we're coaching caregivers on, hey, we really mm -hmm. need you to go do this, we get the pushback. But can you kind of walk us through what it looks like? Because it can be scary. Well, and I will say I work at Cincinnati Children's and I tell the the because I've been there since January and I tell the my coworkers who have been there forever, I'm like, I don't think you guys realize that this is like a bubble of collaboration that is not at every hospital. Like the way the collaboration with radiology and how we support each other. And we, I do a small city clinic where there's two of us. So one of us does intake, gets the patient ready while the other one's getting all the barium and everything set up for the study. So I'm very, I know how lucky I am because I work somewhere else where we did everything and there wasn't as much collaboration with radiology, but I'm lucky in that I see patients and outpatient and then we'll also see them for swallow studies. So I get to talk patients through and families through what's going to happen when they get to the, to the swallow study, because especially our kids who have had a lot of procedures and get a lot of x-rays. They walk right into the room and they're like, oh no, <laughs> this is not happening. And then you have to get them to voluntarily eat, which two-year-olds I think are the hardest patients to do swallow studies with because they're old enough that they know they don't want to do it and young enough that you can't really, like you can't really negotiate with them. There's no negotiation. No. 
but I always in general. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I always tell my families, you know, you come in, you get to sit in a chair that looks it looks kind of like a rocket ship if you like really think about it. So my kids get to decide where they're going to go to in this rocket ship. And then because you pull out the screen for that, they're kind of sandwiched in the middle of it. But I'm like, nothing will touch you. Your parent can stand in front of you. You get to eat the food and drink the liquids. And then we're all done, which sounds a lot easier to explain them when they actually get into the room, because you also have the radiology tech that's behind the screen. You have the machine. And I, I don't know all the technical terms of the pieces of the, the radiology machine, but it's huge. So it's scary for kids because they don't know what to expect. We actually have talked about, because we do, we have a fees coloring book for kids that get fees studies. So we've talked about wanting to create a video for kids, like showing them what's going to happen before they get there, because so much of the fear is the unknown and not knowing, you know, yeah, you say it's going to be okay. But the last time you told me this was going to be okay, I got a shot and then somebody did this to me. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. But that helps. That helps. Because I'm just imagining... I've had to hogtie Bear down a few times for ultrasounds. Carolyn, Stephen, y'all don't know, Bear's my youngest and the eight-year-old that was up all night with the leg cramps. So when we are doing our assessments and we're actually utilizing our products, once upon a time, I did do instrumental swallow valves on adults. This was my CF in the first year out. That was a lifetime ago. And I had a pitch to bring in equipment to the board of directors for the hospital system. It was a very rural hospital, Riverside Walter Reed in Gloucester County, Virginia. That was too many years ago. But when I had to make my pitch, I had to research the, the chair, the rocket ship. I had to research what products that we needed to administer during the instrumentals. And thank God, um, Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris had just started all of her publications, because I took every course I could get my hands on and researched so much of her work in making my, literally a brief and a pitch. I think back, did we select the right product? Did we select the right materials to administer? Because I didn't, I didn't know. I still don't know. So can you talk to us about what goes into the products, Dr. Steven, and like what makes it the right item versus maybe one with like lower resolution or whatever? The- oh, <laughs> sure. You know, technically, in, in terms of radiologically, what you actually see on the uh, on the images, you want a particular concentration of barium sulfate. That's it's really the barium that matters. That's what blocks the x-rays. So you want a particular concentration of barium in the mix that's right for this part of the body, that's right for the for the oropharynx and the upper esophagus here. And you know, radiologists will tell you this is a tricky area because you're going between the larger head and the much larger thorax, and the fluoroscopy machine is literally changing the technique, the radiographic technique as different densities come into the field of view. So it's a tricky thing to get the radiographic technique just right in the neck and to get the the barium to be at the right concentration for that area while also being, you know, visible here and a little bit lower. 
So what was worked out for the, the products that we make that are specifically for the, the modified barium swallow is that it's 40%. It's called 40% weight to volume is the barium sulfate concentration. And that's what does that mean, weight work. to volume? Hmm? Oh, so weight, the weight of the, of the literal barium sulfate, the powder that's, that's suspended in there versus the volume of fluid it's suspended in. Okay. So, it's, so 40, you know, grams per hundred milliliters, whatever, that's the percent. So that literally tells you how much solid is suspended in how much liquid. Okay. And the solid is what's blocking the x-rays. Now the solid's tiny particles, you know, it's, it's, very finely uh, milled and then emulsified so that it spreads out. But that's what you're looking for to block the x-rays just right in that part of the, of the body. Uh, much higher than that, and you're going to get, it's going to look too much like liquid lead, and, and it actually obscures some of the things you're looking to characterize. Too light, and you're going to have trouble seeing it, particularly in the denser areas above and below that little stretch of neck. So you really got, you want to get that, that concentration in the right range and 40% seems to be in the right range. So that's all of our products, no matter how thick or thin they are, are 40% with the, the barium sulfate. Then the other thing that makes a product right for the swallow is, is based on what you need to get out of the swallow. For instance, you, you don't want residue if it isn't really there. So you're looking to see whether some of the barium gets left behind in the throat when the person's swallowing. That's not a good thing. But there are barium products that are made with sticky gums whose purpose is to get left behind stuck to the wall of what you're looking at because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to see the detail of the wall looking for ulcers, tumors, whatever. So you don't want to use that kind of a barium that has the, the sticky gum in it Usually the, the product uses acacia gum. You know, the acacia tree is that huge African tree that the giraffes eat from. Well, it's sap produces a gum, which is very good at sticking the barium particles to the wall of, of the inner lining of your GI tract. You don't want that in the product. Also, if you have a high concentration of something called carboxymethylcellulose, which is modified cellulose, plant, plant fiber, it will also, using... Um, actually electrical attraction between positive and negative charges will also stick the barium particles to the, to the wall. So you don't want that either. So you have to have the, the barium mixture made so that it won't stick to the wall. You also want it to be made to a particular viscosity, thickness. People call that consistency also. And you want several different ones so that you're testing swallowing under different challenges from thin to a pudding. Right. And so and you want to give the same challenge to every patient and to each patient every time they come to an exam. So you're consistent from test to test. So we have to formulate it to make a particular viscosity. And that requires putting in thickeners that are not sticky thickeners, but non-sticky like starches. So there are starches. Now, one of the ones that's really common is xanthan gum, which people use in baking. You, you could have that in your kitchen, bags of xanthan gum. That's and, in thickeners uh, for like a compensatory. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yes. Right. It's a necrotizing interpolation. Like simply thick. Age yeah. one in 100. So that's oh, the oh, product right, that right, had right. a lot of well, controversy yes, with and kids with yes. But it's, it's an essential ingredient in barium because not only does it provide the thickness you're looking for in barium preparations, 
It also is an emulsifier that keeps the particles suspended in the water. If you just took barium sulfate, milled barium sulfate, the rock, milled up into powder, and threw it in water, it would go right down to the bottom of the container and sit on the bottom like sand on the bottom of the ocean. You have to keep it in the liquid, suspended, and you need other things to do that. And xanthan gum is an excellent thing for doing that, actually, Mm -hmm. xanthan. So you need that kind of thing. You need these emulsifiers, suspending agents. And, you know, you also need flavorants. You need texturizers, things like maltodextrin, which uh, provide mouthfeel texture. So it's, it's a real recipe. It's, it's like making food when you're making a, a barium product. It really is. It's, it's I wouldn't, baking. I mean, sort of. And depending on how you're, you make your recipe, you're going to have a product that's going to give the test you want to give, whether it's thin liquid or something like honey or something like pudding. And that's based on all these other things you throw in with the barium. Because the only thing the barium does is block x-rays. It doesn't do any of the rest of it. And you got to make the right recipe or you're not going to get the right test or a consistent test for patients. I literally thought barium made you glow. I didn't realize it blocked the x-rays. So Yeah, so the x-rays. <laughs> not radioactive. I'm still processing that. And the tree thing. The trees with the giraffes. What does that Okay, that's that's how I remember an okay, analogy. Yeah, I know. That's why I say it. It's memorable. Would that, would that be used in like an upper GI or a lower oh, GI? Yeah, 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 that's okay. right. So that's usually very high density. You use very little of it. You use gas or air with it as well to fill the lumen, right? So the only bearing you should have is stuck to the walls, and then inside of it is the air. And then that's called a double contrast barium study. That is absolutely not what you're doing in the modified barium swallow. So you do not want that kind of a barium product. It will create the appearance of residue. It'll be, uh, it'll be too dense. It's, it would be a disaster actually. But like, I had no idea there was two different products for different. Well, there's more than two. Oh my God. But like, that's still so cool to me to be able to understand that. I mean, yeah, and this is that's for my piece. Sorry, Dr. Cersei, but I was going to say that's for my piece. That's what I spend a lot of time talking to clinicians about is that, and actually, all of these products that we're talking about, they're all Brocco products. They're all great products for their procedure. So these are all great products, but they, there's so much that goes into the formulation of these various barium Mm -hmm. sulfate products. For a good reason, because you're making them for a very intentional procedure. And so for a modified barium swallow study, we need the formulation to be a certain way for really good reasons. So you had said before, you thought, you thought that barium makes you glow. Now, there is yeah. a branch of imaging that, that does that. That's nuclear medicine. There, they inject the radioactives into you, and then you radiate them outward, and the camera is a passive camera that just receives the information. In this, barium is blocking x-rays. Other x-rays are going right through you to the, the electronic plate behind you, which is then acquiring the picture. The thing that you talk about that's scary to the kid who's sitting in the chair is what they're looking at usually, and that's called the tower. And in there is the x-ray tube that's actually firing the x-rays through the patient. And the barium is just there to block x-rays so that that part 
sticks out on the images and you can evaluate what it is you're seeing. So my question is, Erin, what does it look like when you're the person prepping this? Because it's been a minute. So like when you're prepping and mixing, like mm-hmm. what does that look like? Well, I'm, I'm very curious to learn from you guys because thinking about the recipe and especially in pediatrics, because it's, we can't, you know, we say to the kid, do you want to eat? And they say, no. So it's not like I can negotiate with them for you better drink this or you're not going to be able to eat. Most of the kids I see don't even want to eat. So we have to find ways to make things more enticing. But I'm like, now I'm like, right. hmm, what what is it doing to the solution? Like if we add, right. sometimes they'll add like powdered chocolate to make it taste better. Or, well, my favorite, the, the best one to do is to use an Oreo because you can hide the Verabar paste in it. But still, then your solids are really hard because you, especially with kids, because you can't, if you put the paste all over it, it doesn't look like the thing they're trying to eat. Thankfully, most of what we're concerned about usually is liquid. So, and if it is more of an esophageal concern with solids, then we can send them to further assessment that's going to look deeper at that. But I try, you know, we do use Verabar products where I am. So we, I always prep the consistency that they're already consuming to make sure I can try that. I like to, and it depends, like I like to get multiple consistencies ready so that I can assess that with them. I think with the younger population and with infants too, it gets very tricky. And I know there's some research coming out in regards to, especially with nipple flow rates, like what is a thin liquid in a Dr. Brown level three versus a mildly thick liquid in a Dr. Brown level four? Like because you're, but it depends again on what the physiology of the swallow is and and why they're having difficulties, which is what the swallow study is going to tell us. But yeah, we use all Verabar products. We try to get our liquid set up in whatever modality they're using. And then we use both the barium paste and the powder for solids. I honestly, thinking about it too, don't know the best recipe for the powder with solids because sometimes I'm like, is this too much? Is this too little when you're mixing it with puree? Because I, that's what I remember. I felt like it was just like, I felt like I was using the, uh, you know, the red pepper flakes from Pizza Hut. I remember the Pizza Hut book logs. I am not too old for those. If you read so many books, you got a free pizza at Pizza Hut. But the red shaky powder or the Parmesan cheese, that's what I think of. Like, and yeah, and, and we hear from clinicians all the time that are doing all kinds of different things. And, you know, I, I think for me personally, like as a field, and I've been doing them for, you know, for a long time on the entire age range spectrum, you know, we know that there are many, many things that we don't know, right, about dysphagia, about what is normal, about what's not normal about the impact of dysphagia, the impact of thickened liquids. There are so many things that we don't know. So for me, what I try to do as much as possible is is rely on the things that I can standardize, right? The things that I can make standard every single time. And that's, you know, that's where I come back to 
you know, Verabar is, it is standardized. We have this 40% weight by volume. We know that it's formulated for the swallow study. And so, you know, coming back to that and using that standardized product, because that way I know that at least that the data that I'm gathering during that modified barium swallow study can then be compared to other data that's using that standardized product, right? Because like Dr. Cerisi said, you know, it is so, and, and in fact, Verabar was born from clinicians asking for standardization. So when Dr. Jerry Logaman and Dr. Joanne Robbins, when they were starting to work on protocol 201, they realized that their research was going to be flawed because they couldn't, they were looking at multiple institutions, right, to gather the data for them and gather and do the swallow studies. And so they're like, everybody is using these different recipes, these different like shaking powder, like you were saying on one thing or, or mixing powder with apple juice or, or whatever. And so they realized that they couldn't really capture good data. So they are the ones that actually approached a company called EZM in Canada, who was later acquired by Brocco and said, you know, we really need some help creating a standardized product for your research. Um, and so EZM, in my mind, really like, yeah, great idea. Let's do it. And then it just happened. Um, so, but, and then, so then that's where Verbar actually <laughs> came to be. But then the clinicians then that were using this standardized product because of all of the other variables that we, the things that we don't know about dysphagia, being able to use this to gather that data was just really critical. And so just a couple of years later, Verabar was made commercially available because of that demand. You know, so I mean, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Cerisi. No, I mean, a lot of decisions in, in healthcare about how you're going to uh, treat patients for all sorts of serious illnesses, you know, and expending, you know, how you're going to expend the healthcare dollars, which are enormous, you know, are based on huge studies. And the only way you can do them is everybody's doing the same methodology so that you can compare large bodies of data that come from multiple places everywhere, because everywhere, everyone did the same thing. Now, not all the patients are going to be the same. That's right. pretty much impossible. But you can make all your methodology standards so that at least you have comparable data yeah. from different places that you bring together into huge databases that are very statistically significant and whose results can be used to guide healthcare mm-hmm. practices yeah. as well as guide reimbursement, right? right? We all are interested in that. And Medicare likes to see big data. That's called big data, literally. Yeah. And you can't have big data if everybody does the procedure their own way. Right. There's no right. such thing as there. Are, there's nothing you can put together that makes any sense if everyone's done the procedure right. differently. And I think that applies just as well to to clinical practice and reassessing and and assessing the progress of a patient or lack thereof. Because you know, if you've got you know, again, every single study I see it or complete with a patient, it it just drives home how important that study is and how important doing it correctly is because we see over and over and over again that a patient was judged to have declined or improved and but then when you go back and you look at the prior studies or whatever it's really like they're completely different studies because one study was done a, a 
with a certain procedure or a certain way. And then the next study was done a completely different way. And I just think, you know, we really, it's a new field. It, re- it really is a relatively new field. So we're learning more all the time about, you know, how to, how to assess and how to treat. And, you know, this is just kind of like one thing. I feel like we've got this nice standardized product and, and it's just kind of a way to take away some of that variability that we see so much of in our field. It will, go ahead. I was going to say to your point, I think what becomes difficult is, is thinking about what information we're trying to get and how we're, how we're measuring that because oftentimes, and, and coming from two very different experiences of doing swallow studies, one where I feel very supported within the collaboration of the team and another where there was not as much collaboration and I felt like I was kind of on this island making all these decisions myself. Mm-hmm. The decision making was so drastically different because when you don't feel like you have that collaboration and support, I think the decision, some of the decisions get clouded by maybe being a little more conservative, which I don't truly believe in being conservative because like we have to allow people to show us what they can do. But your point of what are we measuring, if we're so focused on looking at, which those of us that do swallow studies will tell you all the time, we're not looking just for aspiration or penetration. We're looking at what their swallow looks like. We're trying to also look at that within the big picture yeah. Because that's another thing is that how is this child or person presenting? What is their history? I think there's so many times where people will do a swallow study and it doesn't really match up with what's happening clinically. And that does happen sometimes. Those are things that sometimes we see via x-ray just because we can't observe everything behaviorally. But also how are we trying to set them up for success too? Because if we're constantly trying to look just for the ailment as opposed to how we can support them, I think that poses a difference within how we're conducting those studies as well. And with kids, it just does become so difficult as well. The the people listening to this podcast, most of them work in pediatrics and we have a lot less data there. We have to pull from the adult literature, but also there's so many factors involved and we want to make it look as similar to what they're doing at home, but we also want to make it standardized. And I find that's the hardest thing for me to kind of collaborate because it's like, if I'm going to get them to do this more independently by putting some chocolate in there, is that more important? Or is it more important for it to be more standardized? If that makes any sense, like how am I matching those two things for this individual patient and also for the next study they do or, or what we're looking at overall? Wait, here's my question. Is there a set recipe? Like, Is there a recipe that when you're going in to try a IDC level seven on an Oreo, is the, is there like a certain volume of barium paste to Oreo or you see what I'm saying? Or is, or is it a free for all? Very good question. There is a Michelle set recipe and that's, (laughs) that's in our, our five different, you know, Varibar products have set recipes. Now, in terms of what you're calling, what you're looking at is this called the solid phase. Yeah. 
right? So you, the the solid that you're giving the cookie doesn't have barium in it. So you want to know, I mean, how much pudding do you put on it? And by the way, it's pudding you want to use, not the paste. Oh. There, there is a difference. Yeah, the paste sticks. It's got some of the sticky. It's yeah, got it does stick. It. So it will give you the appearance of residue. So you want to use the Varabar pudding as the thicker thing that you put on the cookie. And, uh, you know, you basically, I guess you basically just put a bit of a schmear on the on top of the cookie. But when the schmear comes there, that's... No, 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 no. See there, the amount that you're using is only, it's just enough so that the radiologist can see the solid fragments going down, mm-hmm. how they're being processed, chewed and going down. It that there you're not worried about viscosity because you're actually testing a solid and the concept of viscosity right. is for liquids. So when you're testing a st- solid, you don't worry about the viscosity of the pudding versus the solid because it's not an issue. What you're what you're worried about is getting enough on there that the radiologist can see as it's is being chewed and going down, can see that the fragments are marked. The solid fragments are marked as they're being chewed up and swallowed. There, you know, so there may just be a little experience involved in doing that. Okay. Okay. So then to get back to the to the schmear part, that was the part that I worried about was are there specific recipes, Carolyn, that we have to follow that they have like we, I say it as if I actually do this, I don't, that like SLPs working and doing this have to follow when they use Verabar? Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's like a great question because that is the beauty of Verabar is it is commercially prepared. It is ready to go for the modified barium swallow study. The only exception is our Verabar thin. It comes in a powder form. There are very specific instructions. It tells you exactly how much water to put in there, how long to shit, you know, to let it sit there, um, to reconstitute it into a thin liquid. But the nectar, thin honey, the neck, the Verabar honey and the Verabar pudding, they are ready to go. Like you just squirt them out. You don't mix them with anything. And then that's your standardized product. Like they are ready to go. So that way, when we're doing these follow studies between clinicians, between facilities, from patient to patient, we don't have to worry about that unstandardization. Like that is a standardized product. So you know that that patient is always going to have the 40% weight by volume, the same opacity. They, they're going to have the same viscosity because everything has been poured out exactly, you know, commercially prepared and as it is, and that's how it is. So you use the national dysphagia diet terms. If a hospital is switched fully over to ITSI, are there directions to adhere to the ITSI level? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Katrina Steele did a beautiful work of mapping the Verabar products to the ITSI standards. Perfect. And it is publicly available and I can send you that information. You can include that in the show notes. Yes, please. That would be excellent. Okay. I did have a question. The SLPs I work with were like, do you know if they're going to make a slightly thick consistency or, cause I know that you have the recipe, but they were like, yeah. that would be, I was like, I don't know. I'll ask them. It would be great. Yeah. And we do get questions like that. We get questions like that all the time. We also get questions about a Verabar solid because we don't currently have that. But yes, we get questions about that a lot. You know, we, we take all those questions and we, I was actually just up this past summer in Montreal at the facility where Verabar is made. And we discuss like, where, where are we going next? What's, you know, what's Mm -hmm. happening? So 
Yeah. So if there are suggestions or questions, always bring them to our Verabar team. And I'll just throw our, our email or our website out there is verabarmbs.com. And there's a little contact us button on there. And everybody, all those come directly to me. So any suggestions mm-hmm. or requests, we we are always thinking and always looking. So yeah. Well, and after you guys have talked about everything that goes into it, it makes us realize how it's not just that easy to make a whole new product. Yeah. So yeah. I think that will help people understand <laughs> that like, it's not that easy to switch over to something new or right. change everything. Okay. Right. So I have, I have two questions. One, can we talk about the radiology, like the radiation component of this? Like, is, is that, and then just general question that I always get asked. And I don't know if y'all are the people to answer this, but if you're not, you could maybe send us to someone who is, how does this impact their poop? Like what, what happens when they, like, seriously, like how, like I work with patients that have constipation and poop Mm -hmm. isn't coming. Or will this impact their urination? Yeah. I mean, I have some patients that only have one kidney. So especially when you work with infants, I have a lot of new moms that come in that are anxious, that are like, I'm worried about the radiation exposure. I'm worried about, you know, and it's, it's hard to always know what to say sometimes because you don't know what their journey is going to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to I'm going to pass this obviously to Dr. Cerisi in a minute here, but yeah, it's a genuine consideration. Radiation in little ones is really something really, you know, important to consider. So it's not just that they're more susceptible, which Dr. Cerisi I'm sure will talk about, but you know, there's a good chance that they're going to have a lot more radiological studies in their mm-hmm. future. They have a longer life ahead of them. So considering their total radiation exposure should really, really be considered. So yeah, if we're going to expose them though to radiation, we want to make sure that it has to be worth it, that we're getting data that is, you know, worthy of that exposure. You know, we still want to make sure that we are adhering to, you know, our gold standard. It needs to be either, you know, 30 pulses per second or continual, but it's just maybe even more. Sorry, so I'm sorry. Yep. So I'm like 30 seconds through what, what, what is happening now? <laughs> yeah. That's a big so debate, Michelle, in the be, world. <laughs> so when you're doing uh, fluoroscopy, it's motion x-ray. So you have some choices. So you can do continual. So that means the x-ray is going continuously, right? Okay. Or it can pulse out little pulses of x-ray. And so the minimum gold standard for swallow studies is 30 pulses per second. Oh, so that that because we know that with a lower rate. So like if, you know, some of the other settings that you can do on fluoroscopy are 15 or even seven. um, There's a there are lots of studies that show that our ability to capture specific swallow physiology movements is not as good with those lower pulse rates. Okay. So that's critical um, yeah. information. Thank you. Okay, continue. Sorry. Yeah. No problem. That's okay. So what I was going to say is the other part of this is, you know, again, we need to make sure that if we're exposing them, that it's worthy of exposing them to radiation. So using homemade recipes and a little bit of this, a little bit of that can do a couple things. It can make the study useless because you're not capturing the right data or you can't see what you're supposed to be looking at. Or it can make the study deceptive. So deceptive means that you 
have recipe that facilitates coating of the pharynx. And so then you think that there's an impairment there because there's a coating and, and the coating is supposed to be there for that product. That's why it's so important for Verabar that it not, you know, leave that coating. And again, the, ins- the inconsistency between studies. So if you've got one study that's using one recipe, one product, it can look very different than another study that's using a different product. So then you have kind of this false data that you're comparing to know if a patient is making progress or, or not. And then the other part of it is it can be useless. Like you can end up with not enough opacity to even see what you really need to see, the swallow physiology. So I have this one kiddo uh, that kind of really sticks with me when I was doing infant swallow studies at one of my first jobs. And the radiology technologist had mixed up a recipe using a barium sulfate product. And, you know, we had done all this work to get this baby, you know, in the tower and got the bottle and the baby was like calm enough to eat. And then started with the bottle and a couple swallows in, I realized I couldn't see anything. And so it took me like a couple more seconds to convince the radiologist to stop and turn off the radiation. And the radiology technologist had just not mixed properly. And I just, I couldn't see anything. The opacity was so poor. And it just really has always stuck with me because I just felt so awful that that baby had been exposed to radiation for no reason. There was nothing that I could see and I couldn't do anything with it, that those images. So I, again, it just really drives home that we need to make sure that we are using the standardized preparation that is intended for the swallow study. Obviously, you're, you're more concerned with radiation in children for two reasons. It's that they, the cells in the body that are susceptible to radiation are the ones that are actively multiplying, making new cells. And that's when they're really, really susceptible to radiation causing damage. And with the, the little ones, all their cells, it seems, are multiplying <laughs> and growing and making more cells. Whereas in, a, in an elderly person, not so many. There's certain ones that are, but many of them are not active. So basically, the little ones, their entire bodies are susceptible, much more susceptible to radiation damage than, say, in an elderly person, many of whose cells are just quiescent, not really doing anything. The other problem is that radiation effects tend to be longer term, right? You know, the medical radiation is should never give you a dose that's going to give you an immediate radiation sickness. But the things we worry about are long term. Well, if you're giving radiation study to an 80-year-old, there may not be a long term. There generally isn't a long term. And by long term, I mean, you know, 20 years, whatever. So you don't worry about it. But with a little one, you worry about it. They're going to live long enough that the that not only as Carolyn said are they likely to get more studies, you know, over time if they have an ongoing condition, but uh, they're also going to live long enough that the long term effects of radiation are going to have a chance to exhibit themselves. So you really do worry about it in children. The question you always have to ask yourself is if the risk is worth it given Mm -hmm. the risk of not dealing with the problem, which is why the child is in front of you anyway, needing some kind of an evaluation or treatment, right? Mm -hmm. A healthy kid with no problems doesn't get this study. 
So you always yeah. have to weigh the problem itself and the risk of that versus the risk of the procedure you're doing to address the problem versus the risk of an alternative procedure, whatever that might be. So this is what you're doing. There's no way around it. And what you try to do in offering a solution that involves radiology is to avoid the very worst thing, which is wasted radiation, radiation exposure to no purpose or radiation exposure that has to be repeated, you know, because whatever it was didn't get the answer you're looking for. Which is what Carolyn went through with the core opacity. Exactly, which she already talked about. So you, you definitely, whatever risk there is, you don't want to increase it by forcing there to be uh, repeat studies or lengthy studies because you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've always, and again, like in all the studies I watch, like I, I always am reminded how important it is to do it right because you are, you're always exposing that patient to radiation And with the little ones, sometimes you're exposing them to scary situations for a little one that's already had a lot of scary situations or is going to have even more Mm -hmm. scary situations. So if you can do whatever you can in this assessment in particular to make sure that you're gathering really good information to set a plan of care so that you don't have to repeat it or, or make it last longer than it needs to, you know, anything that we can do as clinicians, we, we really should. Mm-hmm. This is, you touched on one of Aaron's strengths. Aaron's um, actually taken a bunch of advanced courses. And what, what is the trauma-informed, how we butcher your, the course you took? Trust-based relational intervention. Yeah, that one, same. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. helped, and she's talked about it at length, about how we need to be trauma-informed within our clinical decision-making Um well, even I think for a lot of that, it's just the acknowledgement. Like sometimes a child and a caregiver just needs acknowledgement that this is a, a thing that they, no parent wants to be in the radiology suite. That's not what they picture. That's not necessarily, you know, that was their ideal circ- situation. So just having acknowledgement of that and, and being there with them and, and making them feel like that's not wrong for them for feeling that way can be, can go a long way. Mm-hmm. Wait, Dr. Steven, can you tell us how does it impact the poop? Oh, <laughs> oh, she's really good. Yeah. <laughs> I, because I, I, I get asked that question all the time. Well, we tell them, so we tell them that their poop may look white. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, we lost okay? her. I just want to make sure that's right. <laughs> okay, sure. that. <laughs> okay. So, look, if you were to just eat a, a mineral powder, <laughs> like just powdered barium sulfate, that would be very. Uh, constipating, and if it, it might would might even reform itself into concretions, into like rocks in your in, in your intestine, Ooh. that would be a bad thing. But that's not how these things are made. And one of the ingredients that you will find in every barium sulfate product is an osmotic laxative, a laxative that will draw or keep water in the bowel to keep the product in a suspension, in a liquid form, so that it can find its way to the other end and leave and not settle into, you know, concretions or be constipating. So every product, including all the Varabar products, have either xylitol or sorbitol, something in there to keep water in, in so that the barium can stay in suspension as much as possible and find its way to the other end. 
Excellent. I feel like y'all probably have waiting in the wing some FAQs. Like what are your what are the most frequently asked questions aside from the color of poop do y'all get at your facility? Yeah, we get so like I said on our website, we have a little contact us button. We also sponsor a lot of conferences, so I get to talk to clinicians all day. It's actually my favorite part of my job is talking to clinicians. So I have a lot of questions. I'll, how about I just uh, softball them and pitch them up to you, Dr. Cerisi? Sound good? Okay. Okay, perfect. So can I'm going to start with, on your website, <laughs> sir, it says that there are pediatric indications for Verabar Thin, Verabar Nectar, and Verabar Thin Honey. But it says six months and up for Verabar honey and Verabar pudding. Can you please explain that to me? Well, that's that's viscosity-based. The zero to six months also is a regulatory category. To distinguish an age group, that's probably the smallest distinction, that six-month period. And so when you're going to do an indication for a product, zero to six months is pretty standard. An imaging product is pretty standard as that the youngest and smallest range group. So what you have to think about is the newborn part of that group. That's the distinctive part of that group, the the real newborn first month, second month. And we all know that in in a newborn, you wouldn't give them pureed green beans or something like that. So you really don't want to give things that are puree thick that are Varabar products like honey and uh, pudding. So there, the indication is for the thin, the nectar and the thin honey as things that, particularly on the low end of that range, first month, second month of life is going to be appropriate for them. And but if you know the child is is getting on towards six months old, five, six months old, and they can have thicker things, your your licensed professionals, you get to make the final determination what's best for your patient. And if you feel it's best for your patient to use a a honey or a pudding for something that's that's at that age range, you go ahead and do it. These are recommendations. They arise out of a regulatory process that we have to follow, but it doesn't uh, preclude you from using your clinical judgment. But just realize that that's there because we, we're really focused on that first two months of age with this age group. Yeah. So, and that's what I say to clinicians basically is, is that, it's developmentally appropriate, just like you're not giving a brand new baby, you know, pureed, you know, green beans, like you said, you're not going to give them Verabar pudding either. So another question we get all the time is, can Verabar be warmed up for baby swallow studies? Can you warm it up? Well, the answer is, again, that's up to you. People do notice on the package insert that there's a storage recommendation that is for room temperature, basically, you know, 15 to 30 degrees, whatever. But warming it up prior to use is not storage. So don't worry about that part of the PI. What the PI is telling you there is if you can put it on a shelf for X number of months or years, it should be at room temperature. But when you get a product ready for use immediately before giving to the patient, you do what you have to do for the patient's comfort. We've tested, for instance, warming the thin liquid to see if it changes anything, and it it doesn't. Its viscosity remains basically the same, which is a very low viscosity equivalent to that of uh, breast milk. So it's really okay to warm it before giving it if that's what's going to make the, the child more comfortable. 
Yay. Awesome. And then one more FAQ is, can Vera Bar be mixed with breast milk? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, that's a great one to end on. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, Aaron and I are both CLCs, so we do <laughs> breastfeeding as well. I mean, yeah. and I did breastfeeding. I mean, I lost two cup sizes doing it, but the children survived. We all survived. Continue. <laughs> so, sure. So there are, there are two things to consider now. It depends on what you mean by being mixed with. If you're talking about thin liquid, we know that thin liquid comes as a powder and then you constitute it and the instructions say constitute it with water. If you'd like to constitute it instead with breast milk as a replacement for water, I mean, that's off label, but again, that's, that's up to you and your judgment as a clinician if you want to do that. Given that breast milk has a viscosity of about four centipoise and so does thin liquid, it doesn't seem that you would be changing. That's the units of thickness. Okay. Aaron and I, Aaron and I are both looking at each other like, what the heck is I could also say millipascal seconds, but uh, poise, yeah, based on uh, Poisel, so who's fluid mechanic. Don't, don't worry about it. These are you. So pounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pounds measures weight. Centipoise measures viscosity. That's a new word of the day. Centipoise. Thickness, the resistance to flow, which is viscosity. Okay. This is fluid mechanics. <laughs> okay. So what you see in the package insert when it talks about viscosities, it has this little initials called CP, small c, capital P. That means centipoise. That's the units of thickness. Okay. So since breast milk has the same thickness as thin liquid, mm -hmm. so what? Right? It's not really going to change anything. However, if you are talking about, well, why don't I put in some breast milk into nectar or thin honey because it'll make it easier for the child to drink, now you're changing it. Now it's no longer thin honey or, or nectar. It's something else homemade. And you don't know what it is you're testing anymore. You don't know the thickness of it. You don't know what it yeah. means. So you've changed it. So I would just say that, and, and you've also diluted the radio density, the, the amount that it's going to block x-rays. But don't dilute, you know, things with breast milk that are pre-made or don't take thin liquid, make it with water, and then dilute it with breast milk because you're going to dilute its radio density and make it difficult for the radiologist and you to see what you're doing. And it's going to change the viscosity and you're not going to know what it is you're testing anymore. It's going to take me a day to process all of the information. And I don't even do the blood <laughs> studies, but I mean, this is just also the total joy that y'all have for what you do, that you can geek out to the level <laughs> of like those technical terms. And I'm excited because we learned the word scurry yesterday, which is a group of squirrels because they were eating the bird feeders and the eight-year-old wanted to know that. So, I mean, our word of the week was scurry. What, how do you say that? Centipoise. It sounds better. Centipoise. Centipoise. It's named after the scientist, yes. uh, Pozoi, Pozoi, the French scientist who came up with the laws of fluid mechanics. <laughs> I guarantee my husband would know that. Well, uh, sure, ask him. <laughs> He's an engineer. He knows better than me. Well, but uh, yeah. An yeah. Oh, that's right. Uh, 
Okay. I know people are going to have additional questions. So how do they reach you? Like, how do they field their questions to you? Or how do they follow y'all on like Instagram or what have you? (laughs) I'll let Carolyn do that. (laughs) (laughs) So the easiest thing to tell them is they can reach out to me directly. I can give you my email address and put it in the show notes. Okay. Um, Or they can go to verabarmbs.com. And like I said before, there's a contact us button on there. They just click it and enter in questions, and those questions come directly immediately to me. So I can, I'm can i happy to answer them or disseminate them. Okay. And does Bracco have an Instagram or a social media presence or a Twitter account? No, we, we do not. We are on LinkedIn, but because it's a pharmaceutical company, there's no real social media presence. So, okay. Yeah. But you can see them at Asha. Yeah. Yes, we will be at ASHA. We will have a booth there. Um, and we are would love to meet as many clinicians as possible and answer all their questions. I will have my whole team there with me. We are happy to discuss with clinicians. We also bring Verabar with us, obviously. So you're more than welcome to touch it, see it. You can see the differences and we can kind of show you physically, you know, some of the properties that we've been talking about that are differences. Can, can I put in a request that y'all please do a Willy Wonka tour to the facility giveaway? At Asha? <laughs> well, Michelle just wants to win it. Let's see what we can do. I've only been with Bracco for six months, so I don't know if I have. Just like Michelle, easy. Well, but I think it's not like you saying that this was built off of a need yes. for our, from clinicians. Absolutely. It also helps clinicians should help clinicians feel empowered that they have a role in and, and help clinicians feel empowered that, you know, if they want to do more research or the reason for making things more standardized, like this is all us working together more to create something that's giving better information, that's helping our patients, that's continuing to grow. Cause like you said, this is, a, this is still a fairly new part of our field. So, right. Um, and keep getting the other your, thing yeah, I- go ahead. Just wanted to throw out there in line with that is the, you might already know this, but the first, the very first standardized validated assessment tool for bottle fed babies is now public. Like it was just published. So it's the baby VFSS impairment Mm -hmm. profile. I was just talking about that yesterday. I didn't know if it was officially published yet. It is officially published and Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris and Dr. Maureen Lefton Greif mm-hmm. actually gave us permission to share the PDF with you so I can give that to you <gasps> in the show notes. Oh my God. Yeah, which was so kind of them. Wonderful. So it's the training platform for it right now is being developed. So you definitely okay. want to stay tuned. Okay. So it's so important. Like this is such an important move forward for swallow studies in bottle fed babies. You know, we are using and seeing more implementation of video fluoroscopic swallow study in children. But our approach hasn't mm-hmm. kept quite up with what we know about swallow physiology. So there, and there are really super unique features in oral and pharyngeal dynamics in bottle feeding babies, and it really requires a lot of specialized training and observation and analysis. So I really feel like this tool is so huge for elevating the standard of care for babies. This is going to fill a need. So yes, absolutely. Yes. It's really, really exciting for the field. So it's awesome. Okay. Yeah. 
my, my brain's going off in 14 different directions. <laughs> if somebody listening, I'm choked up. I need to go get a, another cup of water. If somebody listening wants to, um, is inspired after y'all answering all the questions and, and mild humor jokes inserted, do you have a preferred scholarship or nonprofit that folks can make a donation to or tithe their time with anything of that nature? Yeah, definitely. For me, the Dysphagia Outreach Project Mm -hmm. is such an important resource right now. Yes. If your listeners are not familiar with it, they should go to the website. Oh, yeah, we talk about it all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you do. We've done podcasts with DOP and did a mini series with them. Yep. Yeah. And full disclosure, I used to volunteer with them, but it's, you know, it was just, it's such a great organization. And also the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders mm-hmm. is just a fantastic resource. So mm-hmm. either one of those two are are awesome. Beautiful. And we've done podcasts with NFOSD as well. So yeah, yeah. they're fantastic. Doc- Dr. So Stephen, do you have a scholarship or an organization that you would <laughs> love to shout yeah, out? Maybe okay. a favorite ball team, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I listen. I fully endorse what Carolyn said. You know, particularly at the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. Uh, for me, it's not a pediatric experience. It was the experience with my elderly mother, who you know, after several years struggle, passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, suffering from dementia, and I could see that that the problems with eating was a big part of it. And it's a big part of what happens to the elderly people. And I know it's not your area. Your area is pediatrics. But for me, just the, the dysphagia area in general is is very important. And it was it was very important in what I saw in my mother's decline over a number of years. So that's what's on my mind right now. So I would just second that with what Carolyn said. Beautiful. And important. folks. Thank you. And, and folks, if you're not familiar with NFOSD, when you join, and it, it's nominal to join their their organization, or if you uh, send a little love money their way, they actually fund new research to help uh, improve the field of dysphagia across the life continuum. And they have significant volunteer works. One Thursday every month, they have an adult dysphagia and caregiver support group. And one Thursday every month, they have a peds dysphagia and caregiver support group. And DOP, again, go back and check our partnership with them that we did two summers ago, Understanding Dysphagia. That was a nine-part podcast mini-series. And we've also had numerous volunteers from DOP on first bite over the course of the last five years, but any donations that you give go directly to putting product in the hands of patients across the life continuum, including bottles, formula, thickener, blenders, you name it, they'll get it there. But so also they do have very active Facebook, Instagram accounts to check those out. Erin, did I forget anything? No, I think so. Sweet. Okay. Dr. Stephen and Carolyn, thank you so much for coming on and uh, putting up with all of my lame jokes today. I really need to finish writing these journals. I've gone punchy. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? 
The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, this is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So my non-financial disclosures, I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA, a current board of trustees member with the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia, and I am a current member of ASHA, ASHA SIG-13, SCISHA, the Speech-Language Hearing Association of Virginia, SHAB, a member of the National Black Speech-Language Hearing Association in Basla, and Dysphasia Research Society, DRS. Additionally, I volunteer with ASHA as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from speechtherapypd.com as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with speechtherapypd.com. And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator. And I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So those are my current disclosure statements. Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.